HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'll be your host on, for this next half hour here on Heritage Radio Network. And today we are introducing a new sponsor. We have Dixon's Farm Stand Meats in Chelsea Market. A great meat stand, and hope that, um, hope that they're listening, and hope that you'll go and visit them. Traceable Meats. Um, today... We have with us Andrew Coe, who is an author and culinary historian and has a recent publication called Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. And I would like to welcome you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Can I call you Andy? Andy? (laughs) Andrew or Andy, doesn't matter. (laughs) Doesn't matter, okay. Um, Chinese food, I mean, everyone knows Chinese food in America, right? I mean, we know, you know, we've got Chinese restaurants everywhere. Is that really Chinese food? Well, everybody knows American Chinese food, but I don't think that everybody knows Chinese Chinese food. All right. Um, I mean, Chinese food obviously has a long history. China has a long history. And Americans um, didn't get introduced to anything Chinese for quite a long period, right? Um, Well, Americans uh, got introduced to Chinese food in China um, starting back in 1784 when when the first Americans arrived in China. Um, but Chinese food didn't arrive on these shores until uh, 1849 when the first Chinese immigrants landed in San Francisco at the beginning of the California gold rush. Yeah, right. That's, I mean, that interesting that they went to, to the West Coast first as opposed to most immigrants coming in through the East Door, right? Um, right. And um, they were drawn by gold. They were drawn by the promise of riches. And um, it was actually a relatively quick journey across the Pacific. Um, and far faster to get to California than it was to get to the East Coast at that time. I, I noticed it, that, and that actually surprised me too, that not only was it quicker to get to the East Coast, but also because America at that time was still so kind of pioneer country and crude, and travel was very crude, that it was quicker for them to get a lot of, of supplies and things that they wanted from 
uh, China to San Francisco than it was to get something from New York to San Francisco. Um, that's right. Um, it would take about 30 days um, for a fast clipper ship to, to make it across the Pacific. Well, I would take months and months, you know, five, six months to go all the way around South America um, to the East Coast. And that's why most famously the, the story goes that in uh, the, the, the gold rush millionaires in, in San Francisco used to send their shirts to China to have them cleaned and pressed um, because it was uh, the quickest way to get a good, uh, good shirt cleaned. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, now the British. I mean, the British had been trading with um, China for a long time. In fact, they had they had the monopoly on trade. What? How did America finally, you know, make their way in there? Well, um, in right after the uh, end of the American Revolution in 1783, uh, the United States was a very poor country, which had been cut off um, by the British from from most trade with Europe and the and the rest of the Western Hemisphere. Um, that is, that's including the Caribbean. Um, so they desperately needed trade outlets. And um, they had heard stories about the great wealth of China. They'd seen the, the boxes of tea being shipped to Boston and, and New York from the East India Company. And they decided that they were going to try to get a little piece of this trade. So in 1784, they fitted up a ship called the Empress of China and um, sailed to China. And it was filled with um, ginseng, and uh, Spanish silver dollars. And in, in the port of Guangzhou, which we also know as Canton, um, that's where they first had their first encounter with Chinese food. Well, it's interesting. In your book, you describe uh, Guangzhou as uh, not, I mean, it's in, in Canton, but it was really its own little city, right? Right. Well, Guangzhou was, is the capital of, of, of um, Guangdong province, also known as Canton province. Um, but the um, all Westerners who traded there um, were confined to a 13-acre compound known as the Factory District because that's where the uh, the business agents or factors for the traders would live, and um, that was the only part of of Chinese soil where they were allowed to step, and um, so they had a a. They were in China, but they were really didn't really have that much contact with Chinese culture. Hmm. So that then. Probably didn't uh, eat their food or cook their own food or what? Right. Well, they they ate Western by predominantly they ate Western food. Um, they would probably have Chinese food once or twice a year um, in the home of some of the wealthy Chinese merchants that they did business with. And so once or twice a year, they would have this chance for like a huge um, canton banquet of you know great Cantonese food. Um, and for them, this was probably, you know, the weirdest and most exotic food that they've ever had in their lives. And it's something that they could tell their grandchildren about. Um, but at that time, there's no evidence that um, any uh, American or hardly any, any Westerner um, really fell in love with Chinese food. It just was not to their taste. It was too alien. Hmm. And, you know, there was something that you that you wrote, um, the, the Americans um, in their view of China it really took them a long time to really gain any kind of, of perspective on Chinese culture and, and Chinese food. And one wonders if they really got the proper perspective up until, um, you know, the 20th century. But you wrote something very, um, I think, very telling, which I would like to, um, to read at this point. And that is that the Americans, we're talking probably in about the 18th century, early 19th century, you correct me, um, the Americans who lived and worked in China during that time were mainly interested not in what it was, but what they thought it should be. 
I guess that's because they were missionaries and, and traders. You know, they thought it should be an economically and technologically modern Christian nation. And I guess they just went with blinders on and didn't see what China for what it was. Well, they, at that time in the, in the early 19th century, they were f- very frustrated by the fact that the Chinese emperor kept them limited to, to Guangzhou. And um, they really wanted access to all of China for trade. And, they, and the missionaries wanted to be able to sa- save Chinese souls, which, of course, was a, turned out to be a task which they really did not have any success at all <laughs> with. Um, and so they were, they were sort of frustrated and angry. And um, they kind of like took it out on Chinese culture. I mean, they decided that China um, was like ancient Egypt or ancient Rome, so a, a great culture, but something which is way past its prime and um, should be just sort of shunted aside um, to make room for the new Western culture, which they thought was, um, you know, the best in, in, in uh, the sort of acme of human civilization. I mean, and that included the culinary culture. Um, they were really not interested in, in, in Chinese food. Um, and not curious about the incredible variety of food and the long tradition of food that, that existed in China. And, of course, the tales that would persist and come back were about all the delicacies or the unusual things, which were, did exist, I imagine, but you know, to Western palates, that was, it was really um, rather distasteful. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's a combination of just the exotic, things like bird's nests and sea cucumbers and shark's fins, and dishes which, to Western taste, were disgusting. Dis- dishes made from cat meat and dog meat. Um, you know, in, in the West, one did not eat your pets. And um, this was like a great shock. And, uh, and uh, that, this is the kind of... These attitudes lasted an incredibly long time. In fact, I think, to some extent, they still exist today. You know, it's interesting because they were great believers in what we now have adopted called nose to tail cooking you know eating <laughs> every part of the animal which of course centuries ago was uh, thought of by westerners to be rather disgusting and today now we've adopted it in our modern in our modern uh, culinary habits once again um all right so we come to the gold rush and now it's the reverse the chinese are coming to america right, in search of the gold what did they bring with them in terms of their um of their cuisine that we know of? Well, the Chinese who came for, to, to the gold rush were almost all from um, South China and the part of, um, from Canton province, and particularly the, the, the part of uh, Canton province right around the Pearl River Delta. That's Hong Kong, Macau, um, and, and Guangzhou, and uh, the towns in between. And so they brought that cuisine to China. That was the cuisine that they were used to. Um, you know, it's good Cantonese food. Um, but they also brought the... Uh, you know, they had a lot of experience with Westerners by that time, and a lot of them had worked for for Westerners in various places. So they knew what um, how to cater to Western tastes. So the first Chinese restaurants that opened in San Francisco and then in, in other parts of California were kind of like um, mixed Chinese and Western uh, restaurants. They had you know two two menus: one for the Chinese and one for for, for things like steaks and chops and and uh, potatoes. Um, and at first, uh, the Californians, the white gold rush um, crowd, um, was very interested in Chinese food. Of course, you know, this was incredibly exotic and they were into adventure. They were, you know, everybody there was, was wanted to try something new. Um, so they first, that's where they first tasted Chinese food in the United States. 
but they didn't really like it. And eventually, um, actually, actually, after not too many years, they began to turn against the Chinese in California. Hmm. And, and they were, it's interesting that they were even opening restaurants, that they were, you know, allowed to, uh, you know, to work other than, um, you know, panning for gold and that they, that they were establishing a restaurant trade. But then again, there was a long history of restaurants in China, whereas like in Europe or in the West, restaurants were a very new and late to come um, establishment. I mean, there were taverns and there were most, it was home cooking. But uh, does China ha- China has a long history of restaurants? Yeah, I mean there there's um, you know great stories of restaurant culture in, in, in Chinese cities going back to you know eleven hundred twelve hundred A.D. Hmm. Um, where people with you know the, the, all with all levels of restaurants from from sort of country tea houses to you know huge banquet parlors and um, I mean people would would you know go out you know go out on the town at night and go go hit the restaurants. Um, so it was, um, you know, much more elaborate and involved and, and thoughtful than um, Western the re- Western restaurant at the culture at that time. So as as the uh, nation began to develop, of course, they needed railroads, and the Chinese went right along with them. Correct? I mean, that's a- <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the Chinese were were um, um, were probably one of the most important groups of workers to to build the uh, the railroads, um, the transcontinental railroads, which went connected San Francisco with the East Coast. Um, and as they built the railroads, um, they were organized into labor gangs, and each labor gang um, had a car. You know, they, on the tracks they would have a a car where they could buy provisions, a, a, a rail car. And that would be filled with like rice and dried seafood and um, you know dried vegetables and everything that they needed to cook Chinese food. Hmm. Um, because the amazing thing about the Chinese in, in the American West is is that they very very early build up trade networks which reached all the way across the Pacific to get the kind of food and get the kind of ingredients that they were used to eating, and they were very quick at recreating their cuisine in the New World. So there was never a lack of ingredients to make Chinese food. Hmm. What and what was um, you mentioned uh, the Chinese traders and the American uh, adopting kind of a pigeon uh, Chinese or to to communicate with the Western traders. This seems to be something that kind of persisted um, throughout the, um, the centuries when the Chinese came to America as well, um, setting up the their. Um, Restaurants and food. I mean, when you describe that in the book, uh, did that sort of alter how what dishes were, what the dishes were actually, what people were eating? Well, I I don't think it altered the dishes themselves, but um, pidgin English is a kind of um, trade language which grew up in Southeast Asia and and East Asia, um, but really between India and China and and everywhere in between. Um, So people of very different cultures could communicate with each other. Um, and it sounds to you know our ears um, a little bit sort of like baby talk, and I think that really what it had effect of doing was kind of infantilizing um, the Chinese because people thought that they, the the Chinese only speak this kind of like you know baby talk, which which uh, you know sounds really sort of crude and, and simple to them. Um, and of course, the Chinese would probably thought the same thing about us, but yeah. but. It, um, so that had one of that was one effect, and the other thing was that um, even when the Chinese restaurants were open in the United States, the Chinese really kept to themselves culturally. 
they didn't mix in with the, the sort of greater American culture for many, many decades. In fact, that's one of the things that, that Americans held against them. They didn't become Americans. They still were Chinese. They dressed like Chinese. They ate Chinese food. Um, and um, I think uh, that's one of the things which sort of, uh, sort of kept were used um, when, when the people in California started to turn against the Chinese um, as an excuse to kick them out of the American West. Interesting. Well, we are going to take a little break now, and when we come back, I'm going to have you bust some myths about chop suey. My pleasure. You bring me something to eat. Don't want tater salad, don't want fish. All I want is my favorite dish. Sub gum chicken, chop suey looey. Sub gum chicken, chop suey looey. Sub gum chicken, chop suey looey. That's the dish for me. Don't want chow mein, chop suey looey. Don't want no plain chop suey looey. Sub gum chicken, chop suey looey. That's the dish for me. Hot flapjacks, ham and eggs may taste good, no doubt. But I'll leave them to you folks. Chop suey. You're back with... Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palachi, and we're talking to Andrew Coe about Chinese food, and um, we're going to hear about chop suey. Uh, Andrew has written a recent book called Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. And I want to remind you that here at Heritage Radio Network, you can log on to heritageradionetwork.com and listen to any of the programs that are on our network and archived. And today our sponsor is... Dixon's Farm Stand Meats. So, Andy, we were we were just getting into chop suey before the break. Ooh, tell me about that. We all have our, our stories and myths that we've read about where chop suey came from. What is chop suey? Well, chop suey is a, uh, as we know it today, um, if we know it today, is uh, a mix of, uh, of vegetables like bean sprouts, uh, water chestnuts, on, uh, yeah, onion, celery, um, and perhaps a few other ingredients, maybe some uh, chopped green vegetable in there, usually with um, um, sautéed chicken breast or, or roast pork or, or shrimp, something like that. Um, but it actually has a very interesting history and a lot of sort of uh, a real his- a true history and a not-so-true <laughs> history. The not-so-true history is that chop suey, one of the not-so-true true histories is that chop suey was invented back in gold rush era San Francisco. A group of drunk miners wanted some uh, wanted to try Chinese food, so they barged into a Chinese restaurant or or into a Chinese boarding house. It's a little unclear, and uh, demanded food. And uh, it was the end of the, the evening, and the restaurant owner just didn't have any um, you know ingredients like prepared ingredients left. Um, he'd run out, but so what he did is he reached into the garbage and pulled out some scraps fried them up and uh, served it to to the drunk miners and they loved it and they said what is this dish and he answered chop suey 
Um, so that's one story. Um, the other story is that a, a famous Chinese state, statesman like, named Li Hongzhang, when he arrived in New York City in 1896, he traveled with his own chef. And um, the, Li Hongzhang could not eat Western food. So um, the, chef, the, the chef prepared food for, for, for the statesman. And uh, one of the dishes was chop suey. Um, both of these stories are untrue. Um, the real story about chop suey is that in 1880s New York City, um, a Chinatown began around Lower Mott Street, the heart of today's Chinatown in New York City. Um, and this was it was um, populated by um, people who had fled um, anti-Chinese violence in California. Um, and they began to open restaurants. And at that time, New York um, was in the middle of a kind of culinary revolution. Um, there are a group of uh, artists and writers um, who were kind of adventurers, cultural adventurers, um, who didn't like the sort of fancy French restaurants like Delmonico's. They want, were look, looking for exotic experiences down in the immigrant districts. And of course, this was the age of, of the immigrants beginning to arrive in mass numbers in, in the United States and particularly in New York City. And um, So they, this is the Bohemian movement. Yes, they, they were the Bohemians, yes. And, um, and they went down to Lower Mott Street, saw these restaurants, and they began to go in and order food and eat real Chinese food. Um, and th this wasn't like sort of big, fancy Chinese banquet food. It was kind of like earthy village fare. Um, and one of the dishes that they tried was something called chow chop suey. And chop suey in Chinese means mixed bits. And chow means fried. So it's fried mixed bits. And um, in, there are apparently many versions of this dish, but it seems to be a sort of like earthy, funky stir fry made from uh, dried seafood, whatever vegetables were in, 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 the, in the restaurant, um, and, uh, you know, pieces of meat. It was a kind of um, like a mixed, you know, peasant's village stir fry, um, kind of like a poverty food to, to, to some extent. Nevertheless, um, the Bohemians loved it. And they started telling other people and like publicizing these restaurants, and the chop suey craze began. Well, never. I mean, I I can't think of really another um, international dish that took off quite like chop suey. I mean, I grew up in a town that had um, maybe one Chinese restaurant. At, at well, had several before the Department of Health shut them down, but it had perhaps one. You mentioned it in the book too, South Bend, Indiana. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it had maybe one when I grew up, maybe one um, Chinese restaurant. But nonetheless, and my family didn't go out to dinner. We didn't have enough money to take all four kids out to dinner. But we would have chop suey at least once a week or once every two weeks. And of course, it was la choy chop suey from a can. <laughs> but now, what I mean, what a craze that took over a nation. Amazing. Right. It sort of it started in, in uh, on Mott Street in Chinatown. It spread through Manhattan. It spread to the outer boroughs, and then it spread all the way across the country, all the way back to California. Um, and suddenly, the Californians who like hated the Chinese found themselves eating chop suey. It was an incredible turnaround. And from uh, you know the eighteen eighties through, I would say the nineteen sixties. Um, chop suey and other Chinese American dishes like uh, chow mein and egg rolls and egg foo young were what that was a Chinese food to Americans. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Californians hating the the Chinese, obviously over labor, but I mean there was a tremendous amount of, of racial prejudice uh, against Chinese uh, for a period, long period of time, right? 
Right. Um, and, I mean, there was racial prejudice against Chinese to greater or lesser extent, um, you know, across the United States and, and um, for, for many, many years. Um, but one area where the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese did find sort of niches where they could, you know, survive and prosper and raise families we, in the laundry business, we all know, but also Chinese restaurants. Um, and um, you found Chinese restaurants opening up in every city and uh, nearly every town in the United States. Um, it was a good way for you know a Chinese family to to earn a living, and um, it uh, kept many people a- alive. Well, I know in in your book you've got some wonderful photographs, archival photographs of early some of the early restaurants down in Chinatown. And is there anything that has stayed that with it is still in New York uh, New York City's Chinatown that? Um, well, there are there is um, a, you know a dim sum parlor which I would not recommend um, <laughs> from the 1920s or early 1930s. Um, and a couple, one, the oldest store in Chinatown closed recently. So there's really not that much. But the buildings are unchanged. I mm-hmm. mean, if you go to Lower Mott Street and look at the block between Chatham Square and uh, Pell Street, um, you know, that's the same, you know, turf that the Bohemians uh, walked on um, 130 odd years ago. So it's, it's, uh, it's still there. So as in most other movements, real estate costs and other uh, areas of the economy when the bohemians take a liking to something then it suddenly becomes shishi huh? yes it does <laughs> so then what happened with the um, the the chinese restaurants from that point well chinese american food you know the chop suey joints um prospered for many many years but by the 1950s and particularly by the 1960s the, the, their formula was getting a little bit old the restaurant the menus hadn't changed in 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 years and it was getting stale People really weren't that into, chi- you know, chop suey and chow mein anymore. They wanted things like pizza and fast food hamburgers. Um, you know, life had speeded up and and, um, and chop suey was kind of seen as like, you know, old hat. That was something that, you know, one did, you know, 10 years earlier. Um, and then an unlikely savior came to the rescue of the Chinese restaurant business. And that is President Richard Nixon. <laughs> At least he has one thing to his credit, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, in 1972, he opened relations with China. In, in February of that year, he went to Beijing, and um, the entire nation and a lot of the world watched him live on national television eating Chinese food. And this wasn't chop suey or chow mein. It was things like Peking duck and a lot of other delicacies, which uh, um, most Americans had never heard of. But when they saw that, they said that they want people decided they wanted real Chinese food, not this like chop suey, which probably wasn't even real Chinese food to begin with. Um, they wanted the food that the Chinese eat in China, and that sparked a restaurant revolution. And luckily, um, a few years before 1972, actually in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson passed the uh, signed the Immigration and Nationality Act, which allowed for the first time in, in um, since the 1880s. Um, allowed immigration from China to resume. Um, and that was, at that time, that really essentially meant Hong Kong, um, Southeast Asia, and uh, Taiwan. Hmm. Um, but suddenly we were having chefs from arriving from China who knew how to cook real Chinese food. And they were beginning to open restaurants. So when people's tastes changed and they said, we want real Chinese food, um, they turned to these new restaurants, which were opening up in cities like Washington and New York and San Francisco. And um, they were serving really what, essentially what was Sichuan food and Hunan food. 
And they said that's the you know they decided this is like the new Chinese food. It was like spicy and strongly flavored, um, and very very different from you know bland overcooked old chop suey. And um, this became the sort of like the new hip thing to do is to go ha- go to, to to eat this this new Chinese food, eat Sichuan, hmm. um, and that was uh, you know a, a revolution. Do you think that um, Americans took to it then because our maybe our tastes had grown over the years and and we had been accustomed to more foreign uh, dishes, more foreign cuisines? Oh, definitely, T- tastes had changed. Um, you know, for, you know, with with Mexican food and 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 um, the, and uh, um, and Southeast Asian food also appear, you know beginning to appear in a lot of cities, people were were really um, fascinated by spiciness, by by chili peppers, um, and that and people really wanted food as hot as possible. Um, so and um, and also I think it has to do with you know America was was you know the Vietnam War was winding down at that time. Um, but America was still very, very active all over the world. And this was part of a kind of like a new era of kind of exploration of other world's cultures. Um, and luckily, a lot of other world's cultures were, were coming to the United States through changes in the Immigration Act, because now people were, it was much easier for people from, uh, from places other than Western Europe to come to the United States. And of course, some of them opened restaurants. Hmm, interesting. Well, we were talking earlier um, before the show that um, a very common comment from Westerners about Chinese food when they actually were tasted or were introduced to some of the um, uh, traditional Chinese dishes, that they um, it wasn't to their taste that they detected a, ran- a smell of rancid oil or rancid butter. And I was saying, what, what was this that everyone was, was reacting to? And you mentioned probably that it was uh, sesame, sesame oil, oil. Huh. right? I mean, they're, they're, the sort of flavor combinations of Chinese food um, were basically soy, a sort of mixture of the sort of basic. Um, you know, uh, it's a little, it's certainly an exaggeration, but I think there's some truth that there's a sort of the basic flavor combination is um, soy sauce, sesame oil, maybe a little bit of Chinese vinegar, not Western vinegar, um, and then um, seasoned with uh, you know chopped up scallions or garlic. Um, and that is what, you know, Chinese smooth smells like and tastes like, that mixture. Um, and um, for decades, people from the West, European, Western Europeans and Americans, found that, that combination nauseating. Um, but then, you know, tastes change. And uh, now people think it's, you know, it's completely normal. I mean, people, it's, 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 we're That's no right. stranger to that. We love that flavor you combination. You can't get enough of it, right? <laughs> um, do you have a... Um, a- Particular, I mean, after all this research that you've done, I mean, you haven't tired of Chinese food, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I mean, almost every weekend um, I'm going to one Chinatown or another around New York City. There's the Chinatowns in Manhattan, yeah, of course, um, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and in Flushing, Queens. And um, there's some great food um, available right now um, in, in, in these Chinatowns. Uh, well, in March, I, um, I think March 23rd, if I'm not correct, you are putting together a panel, a very, what sounds to be a very interesting panel for the culinary historians of New York. There's actually a link on, my, um, on the page uh, for the radio to, for people to go to culinary historians. And I think that we can... Uh, anyone who's interested can even find more information that, that we will gain from this panel discussion. And I look forward to that. And uh, Yes. Well, it's going to be Chinese food um, in America from the, the 
from a Chinese perspective. It served Chinese food inside out. And I think it'll be very interesting for a lot of people to see uh, um, what a Chinese immigrants' first experience of American Chinese food uh, uh, has been. And, of course, now with the open doors, we're sending our food their way. Yes, <laughs> so for better or for worse. For better or for worse, that's correct. Uh, well, Andrew, thank you so much. This has really been uh, an eye-opener. No, You're welcome. I won't think of chop suey the same again. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to thank our sponsor, Dixon's Farm Stand Meats in Chelsea Market in New York. And, of course, Roberta's Restaurant, uh, which is one of the top restaurants here in the Bushwick area. And uh, I would like to thank our producer, Jack Inslee, and engineer, Nat Wiener. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. <laughs>